Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Friday Night with Friends. You have joined the digital campus of Newark United Pentecostal Church, and we are excited to be with you. Everybody, welcome. We love Friday Night with Friends, and I just love it. It is one of the most exciting times for us. I love our broadcast throughout the week, but this one is special. It is a time where we get to spend time with friends and explore topics in a very relaxed and, and, and enjoyable environment. In fact, we're talking about as a team continuing this theme even when we're back in person. More on that at a later point. First, before we go any further, if this is your first time with us, we welcome you. We are so glad that you have chosen to stop the scroll and to spend a little bit of time with us. You can learn all about us and gain more information at newarkupc.info. I also want to say thank you to my co-host, Sister Erica. She'll be handling the questions tonight and helping us out. Now, let me tell you a little bit of a story real quick before I introduce our guest. And uh, so Regina and I, a few years back, met a family on deputation, uh, missionary deputation, the Phelps. And uh, we we hit it off and became uh, really enjoyed that time together. They were in our home and so a few years went by and they went into missions in um, Uganda and then later transferred to the country of Nigeria. And while in Nigeria, I had contact back with them and uh, found out they were having trouble getting folks to come to Nigeria. And uh, we maybe will explore some of that a little bit later. But so Regina and I ended up taking a, a short trip, a 10 day trip to the country of Nigeria. And it was an experience it was a country that was in much chaos. It was a country that had many, many challenges. But we also, we found a people that we fell in love with. And so we decided we would return. And so that was in, in the summer of 2016. And we returned in April and then again in August of 2017, two week uh, stints each time. And it's there that I met my friend that is on with me tonight. In fact, I met him and his wife, Darla. Now, I need to tell you up front, in fact, I have him off screen to give him a moment here because this is going to be a broadcast that will have some emotion because he's going to tell us their story. When they finished their missions tenure in 2019 and came home, in the following year, as you all know, we faced COVID. And in that time, his lovely wife, Darla, contracted COVID and passed away. And so tonight is their story being told by him but he's going to feel it. He's going to be missing her. And so I want you to understand that we may, along with our laughter, Jerry and I love to make fun of one another and give each other a hard time, but we may also have some tears. And so we're going to, to share with them. But we met Jerry and Darla. We stayed in their home. And over the next three visits, we spent time with them and they became very good friends of ours. I'm not sure if they count us as friends, but we counted them as friends. And I am so excited to have my friend, Brother Jerry McLean, a retired missionary from Nigeria. Jerry, welcome to the broadcast. Well, thank you very much. Happy to be with you. Absolutely. So when I first met Jerry, we, um, we, they were in a mission house there in Enugu. And uh, that's where the Bible school, the first Bible school is. There's now two Bible schools, one in Enugu and one in Lagos. And uh, so I went there and we got to his house. And uh, the first thing is, is Jerry and Darla were very frugal missionaries. If you want to understand money going a long way, Jerry and Darla knew how to make it go a long way. This man did not believe in air conditioning at all. And so I had made arrangements ahead of time. I said, Jerry, I'll pay the bill. I'll do everything. You've got to turn on some air conditioning. Well, so we get there. Well, one of my coping mechanisms, I don't know, Jerry, if you remember this, was I, I drank my Cokes or my Pepsis. So yes. I'm hardly there. I hardly know the man. I've just met him. I've heard good things about him. We actually supported him from the moment he was a missionary in Nigeria. We took him on at General Conference and had supported him since 2001. But I'd never met him. His deputation schedule never brought him through Newark. So I'm barely there. And the man starts razzing me about how much Pepsi I'm drinking. He's like, oh, my goodness, you want another Pepsi? You, I'm going to have to send somebody to the store to get more Pepsi. So this is the tenor of our relationship from the beginning is he would razz me and I would razz him. You want to add anything there, Jerry? Do you have any moment, any, yeah. any comments of rudeness that you want to add to the picture here? It wasn't Pepsi, it was Coke, and it was usually over Frosted Flakes. There you go. That's exactly right. I would drink it first thing in the morning just to get me going. Because Jerry's an early bird and I was not. So you got to understand in the heat of Nigeria, which I was thankful for, him scheduling it this way. But the schedule would start, I would start teaching at eight o'clock. 
Yeah, folks, 8 o'clock, I'm teaching. Now, I understand Jerry's up at 5, so 8 o'clock, half the day's gone. Anyway, two different birds. All right, so let me let me start the story this way. Jerry and I have talked a little bit ahead of time. In 2001, the church in Nigeria had gotten into disarray. This was very early. Jerry and Darla had come there as aimers first, and now we're appointed missionaries along with another missionary couple. Nigeria is, as a country, is a very corrupt country. In fact, it does not, it should not be in the economic states that it finds itself. It has oil, therefore it has access to resources, but it's a very corrupt country. And uh, that had affected the church. And so the regional director had actually just simply wiped the church out down to, they had a Bible school and a single church attached to that Bible school. They had 70 members and one Nigerian pastor. This is the year 2001. When Jerry and Darla left Nigeria. Now, of course, there was a missionary family that had joined them, the Phelps I already referenced, that are still there in Nigeria. But when they left in 2019, the church in Nigeria had 212 churches. It had 24 preaching points. It had 31,768 constituents or members, and it had 299 pastors. Now, in case you missed this point, I want to say that again. When Jerry and Darla we're there, and the regional director said, let's start over. Corruption has affected the church. Let's start over. There was a Bible school. There was a single church. There were 70 members, and there was one Nigerian pastor. 18 years later, 212 churches, 24 preaching points, 31,768 constituents, and 299 pastors. Now, you're expecting us to tell you that story tonight. But that's what we tend to do. We tend to tell that exciting and that that story that we get to get very, very excited about. And while I celebrate everything that Jerry and Darla did, and it was an honor to be in their home to see their work, tonight I've asked Jerry to share with us how did he and Darla, a skinny guy from Wisconsin, a beautiful lady from Oklahoma, who, by the way, Roy Moss was her youth president. Dad, you are officially old. Anyway, how did they get to the mission field? We always tell the story of the mission field, but what about the ordinary people? And I don't mean that with all joking aside, any disrespect towards Jerry or Darla. But how do ordinary people get to where God can do something extraordinary? And that's the story I want to explore with Jerry. So my first question for you, Jerry, is where were you born? Where was Darla born? How did you meet? And was missions on your mind when you met? Well, I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, that was my home. Uh, my family did, were not churchgoers. My mother was a Roman Catholic um, we attended mass some until I was probably about five years old. Uh, but we, really, we didn't have Bibles. We didn't pray, anything like that. Um, so when I graduated from high school, and actually both of my parents were alcoholics. Um, there's some other horrific things that happened in my childhood. Uh, so by the time I uh, went to college, and I was the first person in our family to go to college, to the University of Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, um, I was really had no reason to live. I was really came to the place where I was suicidal. And a friend of mine who had been witnessing to me for probably four years, he continued to witness to me. And at the age of 19, I came into the church. Darla was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, attended uh, Robert Whalen's church, and later uh, uh, Brother Mark Parker. Uh, took over that church. Darla's mother was in the church, came into the church when Darla was about two years old. Uh, her father never did come into the church. Uh, her father was disabled when Darla was very young. And uh, her mother had uh, terminal cancer when Darla was in high school. Now, Darla, because she was raised in the church, uh, she had a calling to uh, go to Africa. She had been in a, pr a youth prayer meeting 
And uh, at the time, she described herself as being backslidden, but she never stopped going to church. And after this particular youth meeting, she was in the restroom and uh, one of the girls came in and said, you know, I really think you need to come back in and pray a little more. So she came back in and while she was praying, the Lord began to speak to her and uh, the Lord asked her if she loved him. And of course she said, I love you. And he said back, would you uh, go to Africa? And she said, no. And so the Lord asked her again, do you love me? Yes. Would you do anything for me? Yes. Will you go to Africa? No. And the third time, uh, when the Lord asked her if she'd go to Africa, she agreed that she would go, but she told the Lord she would never tell anybody about her call to Africa. Uh, well, they, so Jerry, this sounds a lot like the Lord and Peter. Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my... It sounds like the Lord did the same kind of a thing. Exactly. And in her case, uh, she knew that she would have to go to Bible school. She felt that if she was going to be a missionary, she'd have to meet somebody that had the same burden and call and they would get married and eventually go to Africa. Uh, her mother was dying in her senior year of high school. And after she graduated, um, she was prepared to stay home with her mother and take care of her mother. And her mother at, uh, at that time absolutely insisted that Darla go to Bible school. She said, no, she said, you know, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. You can't stop that, go to school. If you don't go to school now, you won't go after I die. So Darla went to, uh, went to Gateway, which everybody at, uh, at her home church, they were all ABI graduates, but she went to Gateway. And uh, when she got to Gateway, she got there in September uh, of 71 and her mother died in November of 71. Uh, I got saved in March. Actually, I got baptized in March of 72. And uh, I knew right away that I, I needed to go to Bible school. I felt even as a child that um, that I was called to Africa. I can't explain why. Never you know, went to church or anything, but I knew God had called me and it was to Africa. And so I submitted an application to Gateway. Uh, at that time, my pastor had never signed for anybody to go to Bible school, uh, but he uh, did sign my application. And when I, uh, when they got the application, it was approved, but they said, you don't have the Holy Ghost. Uh, you can't, uh, you can't, you know, we need to know when you got the Holy Ghost. And that Sunday night in church, I got the Holy Ghost and sent the application back on Monday. <laughs> and a month later, I was at Bible school. So you got God to get on the uh, Bible school's timetable, huh? He gave you the Holy Ghost in time for Bible college. In time for Bible school. But I was woefully <laughs> unprepared. I, I didn't know the Old Testament from the New Testament. I didn't have any idea, uh, you know, they... In one of the first tests they gave to entering freshmen, they asked, you know, to name the prophets. I didn't know what a prophet was. Um, <laughs> I knew nothing really about Pentecost. I had only been in the church for just such a very short time. And, um, you know, I didn't even know you were supposed to go out to eat after church on Sunday night. And, <laughs> you know, it, it really was a shock to me to get there. And really, I never felt like I fit in because most of the you know, students that were there were, you know, born and raised in the United Pentecostal Church. So that's how Darla and I met, actually. She worked for the school in the printing office. I was a janitor. Uh, we both were paying our way through school. And she, uh, one of my friends at the school, he did ask me to try and arrange a meeting with Darla and with him. But it turned out that the meeting got arranged between Darla and I, and <laughs> so we we met in March of '74, uh, and we were married in August of '74. So it really didn't take very long that you know we knew we were in love, and we both were dedicated to serving the Lord. However, neither one of us told the other one that we were called to Africa. Oops, that's interesting, isn't it? So you yes. both held it under your hats and didn't say it. Right. 
<clears throat> and so I came, after we graduated, we came back to Milwaukee and um, I go to uh, Brother Frank Tamil's church at that time um, as, our home, as our home church. And he had asked me to preach on a Wednesday night and on that on that particular Wednesday night, but this time we had two small boys, uh, two years old and a newborn, and they were sick. So she stayed home that Wednesday night. And while I was preaching, I was preaching about Abraham and his willingness to do whatever God asked them to do. And I said, I'd even be willing to go to Africa. Well, before I ever got home, and you know, you have to remember that was way before cell phones, the phones were on the wall. And she got three phone calls asking her if she was ready to go to Africa. And when I got home, she was furious. She didn't talk to me for, it was a good two weeks. Oh my. And uh, she had, she was angry. She felt like the Lord had, um, had double crossed her that, you know, when she agreed to go to Africa, it was, Really, she thought that, you know, she passed the test. She never thought she'd actually have to go. And so she told me what happened to her when she was 16, how the Lord talked to her. And we talked. And after she ignored you for two weeks, after two <laughs> weeks, yeah, she finally she said, well, I need to tell you why I'm so mad. I'm really not mad at you. I'm mad at God. And so. Uh, we we taught at the Christian school at Parkway for some years, and then uh, we applied to go to the mission field in 1984, and we were uh, we were declined because we hadn't passed her. So instead of going to Africa, we ended up on the Arctic Circle. We were pastoring in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, where we get 155 inches of snow a year, and I'm not unusual to have 25 to 30 below temperatures. And so we were there for seven well, that years. Really, that really prepared you for Africa, right? Because that's what you faced in Africa, right? Really? Yeah. Going from the Arctic Circle to the equator. <laughs> Let me insert here too, Jerry, for those that don't know, um, things are, are much different now in global missions. Global missions, a lot of our missionaries are beginning to come from a process uh, called AIM. And uh, and they build there. But back in the day that Jerry's referring to back in the old days. See, there's my dig to get Jerry yeah. back, back, back when they, you know, they they built log cabins and everything else. Back in the old days, part of how a missionary would prove themselves in order to go to the mission field was they would pastor. And so you hear within this story that they were sent. So you set the world on fire in Michigan. Is that right? Did you, you know, no, have our, a leaking revival? You built a mega church up there. Is that what yeah. happened? Well, we were seven years in uh, in Sault Ste. Marie, and uh, it was we inherited a church that uh, just was a, a disaster in every way. And uh, one by one, really, the members left. And uh, in that case, it turned out to be addition by subtraction. And uh, I remember one night a, a lady that had been in the church uh, for 32 years and every time she testified, she would testify how long she had been in church and she played the piano and uh, she basically let us know that we couldn't do it without her, uh, that we needed her there. And so one night uh, she was annoyed with me because in the morning service, I didn't tell her what I was preaching at night. and. She said, well, the other pastor always told me what he was preaching. And I said, well, I'm not the other pastor. And she got annoyed. And when she came at night, she said that, you know, she was quitting. And I said, well, I reached out my hand. I shook her hand. I said, we're really going to miss you. I'll have a letter of transfer to you by tomorrow morning. And so, you know, we called her bluff. She left and... Uh, Andrew, our oldest son, by that he was 11 years old, and I told him, "Well, Andrew, you're going to have to play the keyboard." He had never touched the keyboard before, but really, he ended up uh, playing in that church and ended up playing at Parkway. Was music minister there? Um, had a choir at one time, over 100 voices, and toured the country with a group that he had made. So uh, today he's pastoring. So God was able really to turn what looked like a disaster into a very 
you know, prepared another minister for the harvest. So when you left Sault Ste. Marie, the numbers, the story was not the, the story there. Africa. Uh, we had, in while well, the seven years we were there, we we built the church up to about forty-five on three different occasions, but we never reached the indigenous population of Sault Ste. Marie. We I could win students at the university. By then, I was re-enrolled at the university. We won uh, people at the prison. Uh, we won people that came in to work at the prisons. We won Canadians, but we could never reach Sault Ste. Marie indigents. And when we left, uh, when we finally, uh, when we left after seven years, our church was primarily made up of Canadians. And at that time, uh, a Canadian came in, he passed, he was opening a church in Sault Ste. Marie, Canada, Ontario. And so we lost most of our people. And so we left shortly after that, returned to Milwaukee, continued to work with Brother Tamil and had really uh, given up on, not really given up on, but really didn't have much thought that by this time that we'd ever be headed back to Africa. Uh, Andrew at this time was graduating from high school. We wanted to get him a gift. Um, Had you ever been to Africa? Never. So never planted in the heart of a 17 year old planted in the heart of a child all the way, not even knowing God really. And, and definitely not in real relationship. Then you get coordinated. You try to go, you're not, you're turned down. So you go, okay, we'll go pastor. You go pastor, you're faithful but you don't turn the world upside down. It's not like you set the world on fire or anything. So then you come back, you're continuing to be faithful. Your children have grown. How'd you, how'd you end up heading for Africa? Well, Andrew, uh, you know, again, we thought about buying him a car or whatever. You know, we had, we were very, and Sault Ste. Marie, I mean, at one time, the only job we had, Darla worked at Woolworths 30 hours a week at 3.35 an hour, and I, I did anything I could, clean buildings, cut grass, whatever. I mean, we just survived up there. And when we got to Milwaukee, um, I by that time I had earned a degree at uh, Lake State University, I, uh, a bachelor's degree in psychology, and then a master's in business administration. When we got to Milwaukee, I got a degree in social work and um, was counseling and uh, alcohol and drug rehabilitation. And I, so sort of thought that's how, you know, we were gonna, you know, that was my career. That's what was, and still work in the church. But when Andrew was 18, we we were gonna, you know, scrape everything we could together and get him an, uh, a, a gift for graduation. And I came home one afternoon and I was home alone and I picked up the Herald at that time. And it, there was a trip to Africa to South Africa and Botswana. And so we got that as a gift for Andrew. And of course, Andrew said to me, well, don't think that you're gonna live your dream through me. He said, I wanna go on the trip, but he said, I'm not a missionary. But Andrew, when he flew back, um, he was with the Freemans. And when they landed in New York, he said, when the plane touched down, God told him he was going back. And he ended up being on AIM for a year and a half in Botswana. And while he was on AIM, uh, they invited us to come and join the work in Botswana. And we went for six months, uh, came home. Uh, I continued my career in counseling. By that time, I was a mental health director in a treatment facility. And one day, Brother Richardson called me out of the clear blue and uh, asked if we would consider going to Nigeria, that they needed somebody to help in the Bible school, actually to run the Bible school. And I said, um, yes, I said, we'll go. And he said, well, he said, it's first of all, he said, it's not that easy. And he said, you really need to pray about it and, you know, consider, consider what commitment you're making. And I told him there was nothing to pray about, that we both knew we were called. Uh, we had both prayed. So this was God opening the door for us to go. And that was in March. And we were in Nigeria on June 1st, you know, just three months later uh, in Nigeria. And there, folks, what you just heard is is why Jerry and I get along. He and Darla are both extremely practical people. You don't tell the regional director of Africa 
I don't need to pray. Yeah, that's exactly what Jerry just did. He said, no, I don't need to pray. Darla had her call when she was 17. I've known it since I was a boy. Let's go. I love you for it, Jerry. That's why you and I get along. Well, the funny part of it was, you know, he asked us to go to Nigeria. And when we got off the phone, I didn't know where Nigeria was. I had to get an atlas out and try and find Nigeria. But but I knew it was in Africa. So I said, well, that must be the place. So. <laughs> so, so no bright light from heaven, no great revelation, no, you know, angels ascending and descending uh, ladders, none of that. Just a childhood call for both of you to go to Africa and then a call from a human who says, we need you in Nigeria. Exactly. All right. So this now help us out on timeline. So at this point, we're talking about that you have spent seven years pastoring a church. Yes. You have worked in the local church in two different stints. You've also worked with substance abuse. Um, you've gotten education. You've gone and spent six months in Botswana. Is that correct? Yes. yes, six months as an aimer. Six months as an aimer. And now you go to Nigeria. So what year is it? And how long were you aimers there? Okay, we went in 1997. Uh, we were now, uh, you know, in our early 40s. And uh, everything that we had done prepared us for Nigeria. Um, Nigeria was very, very difficult right from the beginning, but um, but God had prepared us for the work that he had set before us. And so we went in 1997, we were uh, AIM workers for, uh, for about a year. And Brother Richardson said, well, you need to apply. And I said, well, we really don't because Parkway was fully funding us. Parkway in the Wisconsin district. And I said, we're here to do the work and we don't want to spend time on deputation. And But he prevailed on us and uh, we ended up being appointed in 1998. And, you know, you know, we're on the field since that time too, you know, till the time of the pandemic when we had planned on retiring in April of 2020. And we ended up having to be evacuated out of Nigeria when the pandemic struck. But that was in keeping with our plan. So you you became appointed in 1998, and three years later, the regional director says, okay, we got to start from scratch. And so you find yourself an appointed missionary to a tough country and starting from zero. What did that feel like? Well, we didn't know. I mean, Brother Nickerson was a missionary there at the same time, and we had no idea this was going to happen. We didn't have a previous discussion. So we were in a meeting, a minister's meeting, and he heard, Brother Richardson heard from some of the senior Nigerian uh, ministers and leaders, and he just stood up and he said, you know, brethren, we love you, but this is not going to work. This is never going to work. He said, we're going to dissolve the United Pentecostal Church. Um and I uh, want you all to go home. If you decide that you want to work with us, you can apply for a license. But, um, you know, any office you have will not be transferable to the new work. And we got in the car and left. I mean, it all happened in probably a half an hour. So the only thing we really had was the Bible school. And ironically, the, the you know, Nigerian United Pentecostal Church, they took every piece of property they could get their hands on and they touched everything but the Bible school. But what they failed to realize, the Bible school was the treasure in the work because we were training men and women for the ministry. And uh, in 2001, you know, we, we thought when we got there, we would have this explosive revival. We knew we were called, we, you know, we got there, whatever. Uh, the revival didn't come, but after 2001, students that we had been training all of that time started to come to work with us. And that's really how the work took off. Most uh, of the other ministers from the old United Pentecostal Church never did rejoin the organization. Uh, and so we were, we had the Bible school and the men that, and women that we had trained. That really was the start of our church planting. Then Brother Nickerson and I had prayed from 1997. I mean, Nigeria at that time, 
well, we'll, we'll say now, is a country of almost 200 million people. They're the sixth most populated country on the planet. And, you know, I've always been taught, you know, you win, you, you know, you win one at a time. But I've been praying and I told the Lord, I said, there is no way we can reach this nation winning one at a time. There has to be another way that we can harvest more than one at a time. And at that time, Brother Nickerson, uh, who had who was had a prophetic ministry and really was, uh, you know, in my mind, had an apostolic ministry uh, as an apostle. He came, you know, the Lord spoke to him, and uh, he was given the idea that we need to start teaching oneness seminars. And ironically, Brother Nickerson, to my knowledge, never taught one oneness seminar, but. We had people come in, Brother Bernard came in, David Houston from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, he came in several times. And, but they were so successful that we realized that um, we, couldn't, we couldn't get enough visitors in to keep these things going. And so that's when uh, really I basically took over teaching the oneness seminars. And sometimes we'd have a visitor, but other times I would have a Nigerian with me and we would teach the oneness seminars. So the work really grew through the Bible school and through the oneness seminars. And you see behind Jerry, the, the, uh, the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6.4, and that, by the way, in the uh, church that he built uh, with the Nigerian church there in Enugu, where the Bible school is at, it is plastered across that very large structure as well, um, that the Lord our God, the Lord, he is one. And so this was the key to them reaching. And so I want to reiterate as questions are starting to come in, I want to reiterate. And I came in with an agenda, folks. I, I knew my friend's story. We've spent hours together laughing, having a lot of fun together, sweating. My Lord, I've sweated more in this man's presence than I have anywhere else. Uh, he didn't seem to be bothered by it. I was tormented by it. But anyway, I love the Nigerians and I have to say, I don't sure. I don't think if it had just been Jerry, I don't think I would have kept coming back to Nigeria. I didn't love him that much, but I did love the Nigerians. And so I just had to keep coming back and, and teaching them. But let me remind you again. Let me just pull to you again. In 18 years from a church that has to be restarted, from a past experience that doesn't in any way indicate exactly what to do or to give confidence other than the voice of the Almighty. 212 churches with 24 preaching points, 31,000, almost 32,000 constituents, and one shy of 300 preachers. Now, I please understand in all of my Josh and my friend, I've already talked with him about this to say this to you. This didn't happen because of Jerry and Darla. Jerry and Darla were a part of this story. They were an integral part of this story, a part that we honor. But when ordinary people make themselves available to an extraordinary God, that's when extraordinary things happen. Well, I think one other Interesting thing needs to be said. First of all, Nickerson's left in 2004, so they were there a very short time and actually never even established a church. They, they, they had built one building and there was somebody in there, but they're not even with the UPC and were gone, um, you know, by the time Nickerson's left. But at any rate, in the Bible school, Darla came really to, you know, assist me, whatever, in any way she could, uh, in the office, whatever. And one day, uh, one of our teachers didn't show up. And uh, at that time, we were running three sessions at one time. So I was teaching and um, the other teacher was there, but we didn't have anybody to take that third class. And so I told uh, Darla, I said, Darla, you, you're going to have to teach today. And she looks at me, she said, teach today? She said, I'm, I, I'm not at all prepared. I mean, I, I said, well, you have 10 minutes. It was 10 minutes to 10. And I said, you know, look at the book. And so she went into the classroom and uh, she told the students, she said, I'm 
here because my husband told me I had to come. I said, and so here are the ground rules. I'll teach what I can, but I said, but you can't ask any questions. So I don't want any questions. I want you to just sit there and listen. And when I'm done, I'm going to leave. Well, when she got done, they were hooting and hollering and shouting and wanting her back. And she never left the classroom after that. She really became, you know, really their most favorite teacher. So really, they the liked first, her better. They liked her better than you. Well, I asked all the time who your favorite teacher was, and. You know, they soon found out that, you know, I was the principal of the school. It was best to say me, but most of them really did prefer her, Darlington. So, <laughs> Yeah. The uh, the Nigerian people are a very strong people. Very um, strong-willed. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And uh, very blunt. They are Northeasterners, to put it in our terms. They fit very comfortably in our quarter of the country. And uh, and so Jerry's style of being very blunt um, is um, was very effective there. And I uh, I really liked going to Nigeria for exactly the same reason. They were not offended uh, if you spoke to them with respect, but with truth and bluntness, uh, it would earn you favor. And uh, they were not offended by it. Um, so both Jerry and Darla uh, developed a style that um, I very much enjoyed. It made me feel at home. I've had one pastor friend. Dr. Payton, all of you at Newark know him, says, Steve, I don't know how you pastor. All you do is insult your people. Well, I don't really insult you, but I do give you a hard time. Jerry and Darla, there was very similar fashion I found in Nigeria, their relationship with the Nigerian people. Um, but it was um, extremely effective, and Darla loved to teach, and turned out that she that she actually came to enjoy it. Is that correct, Jerry? Yep. She, she would spend hours and hours studying. Yeah. Overs and overs. And she'd get mad at me. She said, how is it that you can walk in and teach and, you know, doesn't look like you ever study. And I have to spend hours and hours. But really, the reality was that some of those classes I taught several times. Uh, but she she loved to teach. Well, my wife says the same thing to me. Of course, I did spend a little bit of time in in. Uh, in study, but yes, I draw on a on a well. There's no question. Once you once you dig the well out a little bit, you can usually dip a bucket down in there and pull something up from it. So, Erica, do we have some questions for our guests? Uh, yes, we do. All right, we've gone a little long, but uh, let's, let's ask some questions here. All right. So, if you could give one piece of advice to a new missionary in a new country that has previously been unreached, what would it be? And Jerry, if you don't, on your screen, you probably see Jamie Reap. I don't know if you recognize that name, but this is a buddy of mine we met in quizzing. And uh, he is now on the field as an aimer. So walking down a path probably similar to yours. So this is where I think he's probably up very late watching the broadcast tonight since he is in Africa right now. Well, I mean, I felt like when we were in Nigeria, the most important thing was to establish relationship with the people and especially your key people. You'll find people that'll be loyal, that'll be de dedicated to the work. Um, I had two workers that um, brother and sister Beardsley know, uh, Anabong and Darlington. And I really, uh, I called them goodness and mercy following me all the days of my life. You know, uh, Anabong was goodness, Darlington was mercy. Uh, and Really, you need those people. You need to have a well-established rapport with the indigents or you're not going to go very far. And it takes time. They have to trust you. And that doesn't come overnight. That takes, you know, really took years for that to settle in. But once they trust you, man, they were totally loyal. Real relationship. I agree. Absolutely. Real relationship. All right, Erica, another question? Um, can you talk about some of the things Darla had to do to run the house, groceries, getting meat, cleaning vegetables, et cetera, and how they handled um, hardships with electricity and water? All right. Well, we never had a grocery store until probably about 2015 is when the first grocery store came into our city. And our city was a city of over a million people. We had uh, shop and open air markets. Everything usually was covered with flies. 
So vegetable day was a whole day. You go in and, you know, the vegetables came in, nothing's refrigerated. You've got to get them the first day or they're going to be rotten by the next day. Uh, everything that she bought, she had to use a food bleach to bleach them. Matt took a big, you know, wash everything, bleach everything because of the typhoid. Uh, the meat day was the same thing. They would kill a cow or a pig or whatever and just bring the meat. I mean, the moo was still in the cow. You could, you know, it was still warm. I, it, and they kill them with a machete. So there's bone fragments everywhere. That was an eight hour job. Um, if when we first got there, if we wanted bread or anything, she made her own bread, her own hamburger buns, whatever we needed. She basically had to cook on her own. As far as the electricity and water, I can't remember probably a day there that we had 24 hours of electricity. And of course, when the electricity's off, a lot of times there's no water either. Um, we collected rainwater off of our roof for the first 20 years that we were there. And uh, so without electricity, you couldn't get it pumped in. And so those were challenges that you just dealt with every day, but it was just part of the part of the where you live. I uh, remember one particular day though, you know, we, we I, I was praying in the morning. I said, God, it was a Saturday, we were off. I said, if we could just have water, electricity and internet today, I have so much to do, it would be great. And contrary to what Brother Beardsley said, I actually did like air conditioning, but you know, but you had to learn to go without it because you couldn't run your gen all the time. But, uh, so oh, the, by the way, yeah. let me tell you, folks, Jerry loved his gin. So when I, if you don't know what gin is, gin is not a drink. Gin is a generator. All yeah. of Nigeria runs on a generator. And he loves his generator because when I was there, he would always warn me. Now, Steve, I've got to give my generator a rest, man. I can't run it all the time for you now. It's got to have a rest here. So he loved his generator. By the way, let me insert here, too. I think I know why you got a grocery store in 2015. Because the Lord knew I was coming in 2016, and I was too soft to handle all of the rigor. So that's what it was. The Lord was preparing for for me. That I now it all makes sense, doesn't it, Jerry? Yeah. Well, on that Saturday morning, though, the the water goes out first thing. Well, we ended up having to tear up half the yard, digging up pipes that were rotten and the leaking all the water out. And while we're trying to do that, you know. Then the electricity goes out, and I, I told the Lord, I said, well, at least we have two out of three. And when the electricity went out, I said, well, at least we still have the Internet. And then that went out, and I said, Lord, we can't even have one today. But that's really what it was like so often. <laughs> All right, Erica, got any other questions? Uh, there's two more. Um, is the Boko Haram active in, in Nugu? Well, they're active across the country since, um, I'm trying to think, but in the last six years, they've killed over 30,000 people and over um, one and a half million have uh, gone into refugee camps, have been forced out of their homes. Uh, but we're in the southern part, which is pre uh, southeastern part of Nigeria, which was is predominantly Christian, but they they have their influence everywhere and uh, it's one of the key um, you know objectives of islam is to take nigeria over it is the largest country in sub-saharan africa they feel if they can win that country they can you know it'll be you know the major foundation for taking the rest of africa uh, we have had one of our churches had a bomb explode in the compound next to him on a Sunday morning in another church. Uh, another one of our men, there was a big uh, terrorist explosion in a bus depot. He, uh, uh, one of their members lost his hand in that. So everybody's been affected by what Boko Haram does. And also there's, there's two or three groups. It isn't just them, but they all have the same objective. Anybody that we won from the Muslim world, they had to leave their area. They had to change their name. They basically had to go in hiding because they were going to be hunted down and killed for becoming an infidel. Okay. 
Okay, so. uh, Erica, before you go to that question, that, my brothers and sisters, is called being persecuted. Being told to wear a mask is not persecution. Being told that you have to preach the gospel freely over the Internet is not persecution. That is persecution. Just to clarify from previous conversations. When you well, have and, I, I, and I would agree that whatever the government has imposed on us in America regarding the pandemic, they have not stopped us from preaching. That's exactly right. They haven't stopped us from praying. You know, I, at our church last in 2020, they baptized over 107 people, I think. You know, so we continue to have revival. But, and ironically, our biggest revival in Nigeria has been in those northern states that are most affected by Boko Haram because the people basically say, you know, we know we may have to give our life for this, but this is the only way we're going to get to heaven. Absolutely. So if you're angry with your pastor for being a little intolerant for how we have looked at the pandemic and the restrictions that we faced, blame it on Nigeria. It gave me perspective. That's all I have to say. It just gave me perspective. <laughs> I didn't say blame it on Jerry. I just said blame it on Nigeria. All right. Well, you asked the question, what is the hardest thing we had to do on Anugu? Actually, the hardest thing I had there was traveling. Uh, especially by, well, either by plane or by car. It didn't really make any difference. I could never travel alone in a vehicle. There usually were four of us. Uh, I've been shot at. I have bullet holes in a, a Chiefs or Christ vehicle. Uh, but none of them penetrated the passenger compartment. One was still stuck in the radiator. Uh, that morning, I was going to preach at a, a, a state convention and uh, they just came out of the bush. They had bandanas on, were shooting away and trying to stop us. Our driver, uh, who, by the way, is goodness, he accelerated and drove at the lead shooter because he knew they were trying to shoot him. So he was trying to protect himself. So we got away. And that uh, that morning I was going to preach on the topic of everybody has a story. Well, by the time I got there, I had a whole new story to tell. But I do think the Lord, as hard as traveling was there, and I was a very nervous traveler. I mean, you know, on one of my last trips that I took in Nigeria, within one hour, we were stopped at 44 checkpoints, police, military, road safety, immigration. I mean, and they're all hassling you. They all want something. And, you know, it was very nerve wracking to travel, but, uh, but when we got to wherever we were going, the Lord blessed and, you know, we saw people get the Holy Ghost, people filled, you know, with the Holy Ghost and getting baptized. And so we continued to see revival, but traveling was by far the hardest thing I had to do in Nigeria, period. Those of you that have seen our pictures from our latest trip to Nigeria, um, Mercy was the one driving us. And they also had another gentleman who's familiar with security and we were stopped multiple times as well. Because the last trip, we were not able to fly into Anugu. Uh, they had shut the airport down. And so we flew into this little, uh, really not a, a people airport, but more of a uh, product cargo. airport. Yeah, yeah it was a cargo, cargo airport, airport called Aweary. And then what should have been in the States would have been maybe an hour drive. Is that safe to say, Jerry? Yeah. About yeah. an hour was more about two to three to four, depending upon how many times we got stopped and how bad the roads were, et cetera. And uh, yeah, it's it's quite an experience. It's quite an experience. Yeah. Well, the roads—that's the other issue. Many of them are washed out. The four, the major four-lane highway that runs east and west across the country, from our city to the through the the next two major cities, all four lanes were completely gone. You had to drive off-road into the villages to try and get around it. I mean, a trip that shouldn't take—you know—at one time I could travel to. Uh, a neighboring city in 50 minutes, it then started taking three hours, four hours minimum. It was very, and, rem and remember, there's no, there's no toilet. There's no place to get anything to eat. There's no place to stop. I mean, you have to get to your destination. It, you know, traveling, when I traveled, I had to pack three separate things, my clothes, my food, my, you know, sheet, pillow, whatever I wanted to sleep in, 
And then, you know, then the stuff, you know, the tracks, the Bibles, whatever we were carrying. So it was a major, you know, I had to carry my own stove, everything. That was the most difficult for sure. To travel. Yep. Erica, a couple more questions come in, I think. Yep. Uh, did you know the Freemans well? I didn't know them real well uh, in the interview in 1984 uh, they asked me a question uh, if I was appointed if I could uh, sit under authority and I said that I could and uh, you know and this was to the global missions board or at that time foreign missions board and then they said well if you're if you're uh, put in charge can you uh, can you exercise, you know, godly authority? And I said, well, if you're asking me if I want Brother Freeman's job, the answer is no. And so I often wondered if that's why we didn't get appointed. But, but, uh, but the Freemans, they came to our house one time because Andrew knew them. And when the general conference was in Milwaukee in 1994, they came to our home and we would run across Pass with them a few times, but by the time we went there, uh, there was a new uh, regional director, Jerry Richardson. We were actually the first missionaries appointed under Jerry Richardson in Africa. And he has now retired and has been replaced by yet another regional director. Yes, yeah, Brother Adams. That's correct. Uh, do you have any stories about people that you worked with and or do you have any favorite memories a story about, about well them? you know favorite memories many 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 i preached at one uh i was invited to preach in this village church well they're almost all village churches at that time uh and i was preaching friday night saturday night and sunday morning so i you know i prepared i knew weeks in advance i was going I had a message for Friday night. I had a message for Sunday morning, no message for Saturday night. And for me, that was very uncomfortable. I mean, I'm prepared. I know what I'm doing when I get someplace. And so we had a great service Friday night and it's just a little shack. It's flower sack walls, a tin roof, hotter than can be, uh, but the place is totally packed. Many of them had never seen a white person before and that happened often. And so the whole place was full. And on Saturday night, all day Saturday, you know, I get up, I'm praying, I'm begging God anything. And even when I got to church, I didn't even think I could, you know, preach Acts 238 that night. I mean, I was just a total blank slate. So I'm sitting there and um, they had their worship and whatever. And the pastor's getting up to introduce me and I, I, I have no idea what I'm going to do when I get up there. And nobody can live up to an African uh, introduction. I mean, they're so flowery. They're so over the top. And so, I mean, I'm horrified. Well, at that time, right about that time, a woman in the front who was uh, demon-possessed, she began to act out. And so she starts thrashing around, and the lady next to her tries to cast the devil out of her. No, you're a missionary. He stayed right in his chair. I never moved. And I'm watching this lady try to cast the devil out of her, and she can't do it. And the demon-possessed woman is getting more wild by the minute. So a second lady joins in. And then a third lady joins in. All the benches are kicked, getting kicked over. The dust is flying all over the place. I mean, it's total crazy pandemonium. And then the Lord spoke to me and said, now I want you to preach. And he said, I want you to preach. I'm a jealous God, and I will not share my glory with another. And so I got up there, and I told him, I said, everybody stop. I said, everybody close your eyes, put your hands up. I said, I came to worship the Lord. I came to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he's a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another, not even a devil. Well, when I said that, the people all you know, they had their hands up. They all started to worship the Lord. And to me, it reminded me or what I thought the day of Pentecost was like that in that upper room, because all of a sudden they all started breaking out for speaking in tongues. The demon possessed woman got on the ground, you know, as God is my witness, just like a snake. And she just 
slithered across the front and out the side door and was gone. We baptized 36 the next morning. It was it was an awesome display of God's power, you know, which really I had, you know, I mean, I had nothing to do with it. I mean, I just was there at the right time and he gave me a word and God moved in a spectacular way. Speaking of flowery introductions and that, uh, share with the church, I've told a little bit of this, but you have a very wry way of saying it. When you got there, when did you figure out that you couldn't show up to church at the same time as the Nigerians? Talk about how that you, uh, your phone calls that you would get when it was time to come preach and so forth. Well, when, now in our church at the Bible school, we started on time. I didn't care if anybody was there, but when we traveled out, um, I just sit in the hotel and I tell them, call me when you're ready. And some of those hotels, they were such dumps. I mean, well, you heard me say I had to bring my own towels, sheets, everything. But I mean, to go sit out there and be eaten alive by mosquitoes and army ants and every other thing crawling through the place. So I just got to the place where I tell them, when you're ready for me to preach, call me and I'd come. Because they could go for how long in the in the pre-service before you ever get to the preaching? Well, the first time that I was asked to preach in Nigeria, and they called it a crusade, and it was very well attended, but they never called me up to preach until 10, 15 at night. And they started when? They started at 6 o'clock. P.M.? Yes. Yeah. So four and or that's five after, hours. Yeah, and that's after being in service all day, you know, having different sessions and so really what I did after I was there for a while, when I go to a church, you know, sometimes I just go to the church and say, if I'm not in the pulpit by 11 on a Sunday morning, I'm leaving. And they all say, okay, okay. But, you know, they're not going to follow it. But I left two churches. And after that, word got out that I was going to leave. So I usually got the pulpit at a decent hour. So, folks, um, I'm going to take a little uh, prerogative here. If you ever find your pastor slightly rude, with his structure, telling you, now, Eric, keep it together there. Don't don't laugh too hard. And we tell you, I just want to go back over it again. So the man who said, call me when it's time to preach, you know, sounds like God can't move through that, right? 212 churches, 24 preaching points, 31,000, almost 32,000 constituents, and 299 pastors. So uh, revival is not contingent on a pleasing personality. Just 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 making that plain there. Jerry has a very pleasing personality, but the Nigerians don't always. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Really, the truth is that, you know, there was a, a great love relationship between uh, Darla and I in the constituency. And even, you know, since we've been home, I mean, I get constant emails and contacts. Uh, I mean, the church is a family. Absolutely. And, you know, now I have family in two continents and, you know, it was very hard to leave. It was very difficult to leave, but there came a time that, you know, it had to be done. And so. I find, I find this comment uh, real quick, Erica, uh, my wife, you'll enjoy this one, Jerry. One of the ways that Regina normally deals with stress is to say, what's the worst thing that could happen? She does not use that method of stress management in Nigeria because the answer doesn't help her at all. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the truth. You know, I <laughs> I could anticipate the worst on most every trip. I mean, those trips were memorable. Pop up Jamie's uh, question, Erica. Yeah, perfect. Uh, what's your favorite indigenous dish or your least favorite or both? All right. My least favorite was just about everything they made. Uh, I wouldn't eat their food when they asked me to eat their food. I would tell them I was called to preach the gospel, not to eat your food. Uh, one time they were making one of their specialty dishes and they said uh, it was periwinkle soup. It's these little black snail type things that they're filthy. It's disgusting. It's whatever. And they said, you know, well, Brother Poitras always ate it. And I said, well, at that time he was in Ghana. I said, send it to Ghana. He can eat it there. But <laughs> I didn't need it. You know, they ate dog. They eat. I mean, if it moved, crawled, whatever, they'd eat it. In fact, when Brother Phelps got there, he was so bold. He ate a deep fried maggot. I want one of those and you never got me my deep fried maggot. I can try oh anything God. once. 
Jerry never found it for me because it's up in your area where I get them. No, they're not in our area. They're really more towards the middle of the country. Oh, is that the reason? Okay. Yeah. See, I, I, but I, I still think he wouldn't get them because he was just gagged out by the fact that I would eat one. So I would eat, if I went somewhere and they served rice and chicken, all right, I would eat that. The chicken usually was so hard, you couldn't get it down. Um, after after I realized that every place you go, they want to serve you, uh, I started bringing a student with me. And you know, in the US, if you go to a bar, you have a designated driver. Well, I carried a student and he was my designated eater. And so when they would serve me, he would sit right next to me and whatever I knew I couldn't get down would get on his plate somehow, he'd eat it. and the, the Nigerians would be happy. The student was very happy and I was happy. So work for all of us. There you go. So you didn't eat fufu? No, I've tried all of it, but I mean, really. Yeah, I didn't like fufu either. It was like just filling my belly with like a rock. Yeah, well, when they eat, you know, flayed rats or frogs or any of the rest of it, I mean, it's just like too much. All right, we're at the top of the hour. Erica, any other questions that we, that uh, we There's just one more that just says, um, who's in charge of the Bible school and church since you're back in the States? Okay, so when we got there, um, probably by about 1999, maybe 2000, uh, we had a student that was very gifted. Uh, ironically, the student came. He didn't believe in one God. Most of our students were Trinitarians when they came to the school. Uh, he got a revelation of the Godhead. Uh, he started teaching in the school, and we trained him to be the uh, to really be the principal. And today, he's the principal of the school in Enugu, and he's actually the president of all the Bible schools in Nigeria, all the UPC Bible schools but we worked at training him for years. And so he actually ran the Bible school probably the last 10 years we were there. Darla and I taught, Darla and I would help with stuff, but he took care of all the finances. He took care of all the student, not all the student issues, but you know, most of them and whatever. But so he's very capable. The work in Nigeria is nationalized, which means folks that it is now uh, all of the Positions are held by Nigerians and it is governed, it's self-governing. And that's the goal of the United Pentecostal Church is to, even when we found a work, and you heard us reference at the beginning or very early on in Jerry and Darla's time there, that the work started afresh. Uh, the goal of the missionary is not to keep it run by uh, missionaries, but rather to get it into the hands of the indigenous and, and local people. Uh, and then for the missionary to work in cooperation and alongside of the work there and so that was that was actually in process in the last few years yes we started planning for that in 2014 in 2017 it was actuated so i you know resigned as superintendent as president of the bible school uh so nationals held all of those offices the first superintendent was our first graduate from bible school nearly everybody on the board is one of our bible school graduates and uh and then you know the plan was that we we knew we were going to retire in 2020 so uh but we stayed for the three years after they nationalized to help and oversee and you know whatever and so we served them the last three years as uh basically as uh advisor to the national board and whatever and then uh and of course we continued our you know, traveling into other parts of the country and opening churches and that sort of work. But the actual running of the church was turned over to the Nigerians in 2017. Absolutely. All right, Erica, did we cover everybody's questions, I think? Yes. Excellent. Well, let me say to everybody, it's been a joy to have Jerry with us. Jerry, thank you for spending an hour with us. It's always uh, great. And when I told him that I was going to kind of make this point about that the ordinary when made available to an extraordinary God can produce extraordinary things. He said, well, that's why I can't come preach at your church, trying to tell me and dig at me that he was ordinary and therefore he can't come preach at my church. But Jerry, I'm telling you on broadcast, on live, once our COVID restrictions are done, you are coming to preach at, I think, an extraordinary church because you're an extraordinary man. And Darla was an extraordinary lady as well. But when compared to what God did in Nigeria, all of us are ordinary. But look at what God can do. 
And my point to all of us is to realize that whatever God is calling you to, he doesn't call you because you're qualified. He calls you because he knows how to get you ready. Amen. You'll make yourself available. And that's why I asked Jerry to share the backstory. And there's so much more details. I've spent hours with this man. And so there's many, many more stories. But I hope that you got a glimpse tonight that God knows what he's doing when he puts us and allows us to go through circumstances in life. And these circumstances are all about his plan, both to be faithful to us, but also to use us within his kingdom for his glory. Mm -hmm. And um, we celebrate the work in Nigeria. I look forward to going back there um, at some point. And uh, it won't be the same without Darla, Jerry. And I, I know that, that your heart breaks every time. And my friend, we pray for your comfort and your strength in this season. This isn't how they had planned um, things to happen. But even in this, we choose to trust that God is faithful. Amen. We choose to trust. One of the most powerful moments, I'll end on this, that I've ever seen in my entire life is watching at Darla's funeral as this man stood and spoke from his heart, both his heartbreak, but his absolute trust in a God who has been faithful. I have never seen a more powerful moment. And I told Jerry this personally. I've never seen a more powerful moment of a Christian standing and doing exactly what the Apostle Paul calls us to do. There is hope in the resurrection. Amen. And we simply got to believe it. Jerry, thanks for being on. I appreciate the time for being with us. To all the rest of you, thank you. Erica, thank you for hosting and helping us. I hope tonight this was less about missions and more about availability. Whether it God's going to call you to missions or he's going to call you to faithfulness within a local church or he's going to call you to pastor a church or he's going to call you to do something within the community. Availability is the key, not your capability, yeah. your availability. God doesn't need our skills. He can give us skills we don't even have. He needs our participation and our availability. And when ordinary gets coupled with the extraordinary of God, sky's the limit of what can happen. Amen. Amen. Join us every single night. We're looking forward. Let me remind you, have your supplies ready. We're going to celebrate communion together online this Sunday. So two more nights. We broadcast Tuesday through through Sunday, six days a week, seven o'clock, same time, every single time. If this has been your first time with us, we welcome you and we're glad that you joined us to the rest of you. Thank you for being with us tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we will see you tomorrow night at seven o'clock. God bless everybody. Have a great night.